This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And now, an Action News special report. The subject, vampires. In the early morning hours of August 14, 2011, police in Galveston, Texas, were called to an apartment complex to investigate a reported assault. They arrived to find 19-year-old Lyle Bensley in the parking lot. He was growling and hissing and was wearing nothing but boxer shorts. When police attempted to restrain him, the teenager took off running. As he tried to escape, he scaled two tall fences, which, according to officers, he did with minimal effort. Bensley was cornered shortly after and taken into custody. Minutes before police arrived on scene, the teen had broken into the apartment of a total stranger. The only occupant was a woman who had been fast asleep. She awoke to the sounds of hissing and growling right next to her, and the moment she opened her eyes, the mostly naked intruder began biting her neck. As she struggled, Bensley dragged her out of the apartment and into the hallway where she was able to break free. Running for her life, the terrified woman was picked up by a passing car. The attacker followed steps behind and pounded his fists on the car before it quickly drove away. As Galveston police were arresting Lyle Bensley, he yelled repeatedly that he did not want to feed on humans. When authorities put him in a jail cell, he repeatedly told officers that they had to keep him in handcuffs for their own protection. An officer was quoted saying, He was begging us to restrain him because he didn't want to kill us. He said he needed to feed. The 19-year-old told them that he was a 500-year-old vampire. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to this episode of True. Vampires, children of the night, the undead. Vampires have been a part of folklore long before Bram Stoker's Dracula was published in 1897. While his book gave us the modern vision of vampires, the idea of evil bloodsuckers has been around for thousands of years. References have been found in art and literature from ancient Greece and Rome to Mesopotamia. Recently, the popularity of vampires has been ignited by movies such as the Twilight series and TV shows like True Blood and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But sometimes, beyond folklore and entertainment, stranger-than-fiction cases are reported. In the Lyle Bensley case, the 19-year-old fortunately did not seriously injure his victim. The alleged 500-year-old vampire remained in custody on a $40,000 bond and was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Interestingly, at the time of his arrest, no drugs were found in his system. While the unidentified woman in that attack did not require medical attention, others who have come face to face with those claiming to be vampires have not been so lucky. 
Did you know there are people who claim to be real-life creatures of the night? Yeah, so the question is, who are these people and are they the real deal? We In Australia, Tracy Wigginton would make international headlines when she and her accomplices committed what's still called one of the most bizarre and brutal murders the country has ever seen. Wigginton, then 25, was a self-proclaimed vampire and was known to drink animal blood, which she claimed kept her alive. Her girlfriend, 24-year-old Lisa Pachinski, would later admit to allowing her vampire lover to feed on her. But Wigginton's need for blood escalated. She told Pachinski that she believed killing a man would finally allow her to properly feed. So, along with two other friends, 23-year-olds Kim Jarvis and her girlfriend, Tracy Waugh, they devised a plan to satisfy her thirst. On October 21, 1989, 47-year-old Edward Baldock was on his way home from a night at the pub with friends. As the heavily intoxicated man walked, the women drove up and convinced him to get in as Kim Jarvis flirted with him. The group drove to a nearby Riverside Park where Wigginton and Pachinski led Baldock to the river's edge. Without warning, Tracy Wigginton stabbed her unsuspecting victim in the neck with the hunting knife Lisa Pachinski had provided for the event. She stabbed him again, this time on the other side of his neck. The father of five would be stabbed a total of 27 times before it was over. The attack was so brutal that Wigginton almost removed his head entirely. Kneeling over the dying man's body, she fed. She stabbed him so many times she'd created a, a cavity, a hole in his back, uh, about the size of a bread and butter plate. And uh, she told the girl she was going to drink blood and she actually was seen to put a face into the aperture she'd created in his back. When she finished, she calmly walked over to the river to wash the knife and herself. She and the knife were drenched in blood. As clean as she could get, Wigginton went back to the car, and the group went on to their own homes. Kim Jarvis took the murder weapon with her and scrubbed it with bleach to remove any evidence. Clues left at the crime scene led authorities directly to Tracy Wigginton, and within 24 hours of the vicious murder, all four women were in custody. During chilling police interviews, Wigginton said, I felt nothing, as she killed Edward Baldock. She went on to describe the attack in detail. I walked around behind him. I took my knife out of my back pocket. He asked me what I was doing. I said nothing and stabbed him. He went up to grab my hand. I pushed his hand down, withdrew the knife and stabbed him in the side of the neck. I stabbed him in the other side of the neck and I continuously stabbed him. I then grabbed him by the hair on his head and pulled back stabbed him in the front of the throat, and at that stage, he was still alive. Asked why they followed along, Lisa Pachinski said, She had some sort of inner power. She can do strange things. She can make people disappear, except their eyes. She can read my mind. She can read my mind. She can read my mind. Dubbed the lesbian vampire killers by the media, Tracy Wigginton was the only one to plead guilty and was quickly sentenced to life in prison. The court has been told that Tracy Wigginton believes she was a vampire. 
She was involved in satanic worship, witchcraft and blood drinking. Her co-accused, Lisa Pajinski, said she could not eat solid food. She had to feed on blood. The other three pled not guilty, but only Tracy Waugh, who had waited in the car throughout the entire killing, was acquitted. For her part in convincing Edward Baldock to get in the car, Kim Jarvis was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 18 years behind bars. Lisa Pachinski, who provided the murder weapon and was present for the initial attack, was found guilty of murder and given a life sentence. The jury took more than two days to find two of the women guilty of the slaying. Today they found Lisa Pachinski guilty of murder and Kim Jarvis guilty of manslaughter. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In another widely reported attack, a man was almost killed when a woman claiming to be a vampire started biting his face. It happened in St. Petersburg, Florida on November 9th, 2011. It is a bizarre when police have charged a woman with a vampire attack at a deserted Hooters restaurant. Officers say just after midnight... While taking shelter from the rain under the overhang of a vacant restaurant, 69-year-old Milton Ellis sat patiently in his motorized chair. He noticed a young woman nearby who had been caught in the rainstorm and invited her to wait it out with him. The woman told him that she was waiting for a family member to pick her up. The rain continued and at some point Milton Ellis fell asleep. He awoke to find the young woman on top of him, screaming, I am a vampire. I'm going to kill you. The next thing he knew, she was biting into his face and arms. She had viciously bitten off chunks of flesh before he managed to escape and call police. When authorities arrived, they found 22-year-old Josephine Smith naked and drenched in blood. Detectives say Josephine Smith yelled she was a vampire and started biting the flesh from his lips and cheeks. His injuries were rather severe looking. Uh, they were uh, bites upon the face. He had one particularly severe laceration to his lip that required stitches. She told officers that she couldn't remember attacking the man, or how she ended up at the vacant restaurant to begin with. Smith was charged with felony aggravated battery, and served six months in prison. Four years later, in May 2015, Josephine Smith made headlines again when she attacked another person, this time with scissors. As she sat in the back of the police cruiser, she reportedly went on and on about vampires as she tried to kick out the windows. Halfway around the world in the African country of Malawi, vampire hysteria reached a whole new level when it became a national crisis. In a country where witchcraft and magic rituals are still widely practiced, it only took rumors of blood-sucking vampires to ignite a countrywide panic. Throughout the summer of 2017, 
stories were coming into Malawi from neighboring country Mozambique, where rumors of vampires had already been spreading. The reports of vampire vigilantes started in September 2017, and by October, vampire hunters had murdered five people suspected of drinking human blood. It's not clear how the rumors started, but vigilantes are reportedly roaming the region looking for supposed blood-sucking vampires. According to Reuters news agency, a U.S. Rumors have been spreading in the southeastern African country, as people are believed to be drinking human blood as part of magic rituals. Vigilante vampire hunters have killed five people in Malawi since September. The violence has gotten so bad. Residents in this rural village in southern Malawi are in shock after members of their community were killed by an angry mob who accused them of being vampires. Fear turned into panic, and it didn't take long after that for it to become violent enough to impact the United Nations. The UN reported that it was forced to evacuate from at least two locations due to the escalating vampire riots. It released a statement at the time, saying that they were watching the situation closely and would have their staff back in the field when the violence ended. According to Reuters news agency, a UN Department of Safety and Security report, an unknown number of staffers have reportedly been pulled out of the field in several Malawian districts due to security concerns. And Reuters notes other humanitarian organizations are doing likewise. By November 2017, the mobs had killed nine people suspected of being vampires, and the bloodshed wasn't just happening in remote villages. Victims were being stoned to death and set on fire in Malawi's largest cities. The assaults began in September in neighboring Mozambique and have since spread to Malawi's second largest city of Blantyre. Malawi Police Inspector General Lexon Kachama told reporters that police were doing everything possible to contain the situation before it spreads to other cities. This is a sad development because we are living in constant fear. Our movements are regulated. We cannot walk at night because even those... Police had already arrested hundreds of rioters and were struggling to keep up with the mass hysteria. Further measures were needed to restore calm. The UN created so-called no-go zones around the most volatile areas, warning people to stay away. The United Nations and the US Embassy have blacklisted several districts in Malawi as dangerous zones for staffers and nationals. Curfews were established and police patrols were increased all of which ultimately contributed to quieting the vampire-hunting mobs. But this was not the first time vampire mania had swept across Malawi. For several weeks in December 2002, villagers were terrified by stories of women and children being attacked for their blood. Similar to the 2017 riots, vampire vigilantes took their fear out on strangers, injuring dozens. The mob suspected one stranger of working for vampires and stoned him to death as he walked down the street. The same fate would have reportedly come to several Catholic priests had someone in the crowd not recognized them in time. During the 2002 vampire wave, panic and paranoia even reached the highest levels of government. People started to believe that officials were somehow involved in the blood-sucking nightmare. The government took the rumors so seriously that the country's president at the time felt compelled to make a statement. It was an attempt to calm civil unrest. Quote, No government can go about sucking the blood of its own people. That's thuggery. Not surprisingly, the reassurance did nothing to ease suspicions. But instituting a 5 p.m. curfew 
and rounding up anyone suspected of hunting vampires, eventually ended the violence. At least for a time. Back in the US, people continued to fall victim to vampire attacks. On November 8, 2016, an employee working the late shift at a grocery store in Concord, New Hampshire, was assaulted by a man claiming to be a vampire. As the female employee was recycling boxes outside the store, 21-year-old Jacob May approached her, asking if she needed any help. As he got closer, the man started yelling that he was a vampire and began running at her. At this point, the terrified woman ran back into the store, screaming for help. Just as she got the words out, Jacob May wrapped his arms around her, yelling, Just touch me. I can save you. A moment later, another employee, hearing the struggle, ran over to help. Thomas Marr says the only thing he could think of was helping his co-worker, as she was allegedly being chased through the Concord Co-op by 21-year-old Jacob May, who said he was a vampire. I thought it was some kind of cruel joke. She was just crying, and the man was physically grabbing her, had his arms around her, and so I went up to confront the man, and he immediately let go of her and engaged me. Marr says punches were thrown, and the two eventually ended up on the ground. He started babbling things. Just, I just uh, didn't make any sense. The man didn't make sense. The general manager of the food co-op released a statement which called the incident disturbing and said that they are glad no one was hurt. When the police arrived, May informed them that he was a vampire and was quickly arrested. In the late 1920s, the German town of Dusseldorf became a victim of their own vampire killer. Peter Curtin was already an established criminal by the time he committed a series of murders that would earn him the name, the Vampire of Dusseldorf. He was believed to be by many pure evil and spent his entire life tormenting and abusing every living thing he came in contact with. At the age of five, Curtin tried to drown a playmate. He failed that time, but would try it again four years later. When he was nine, he went out on a log raft with two schoolmates. Knowing that one of the boys couldn't swim, he pushed him off the raft. The second boy jumped in to save the other. As the first boy struggled to stay above water, Curtin held the other boy's head under until he too slipped below the surface. Investigators ruled both deaths accidental. They never suspected Peter Curtin was involved until he confessed decades later. As he grew up, his desire to inflict pain became uncontrollable, and he often and without warning lashed out. But it wasn't until February of 1929 that his reign of terror truly began. On February 3rd, 1929, Curtin attacked an elderly woman after following her until no witnesses were in sight. He threw the woman behind some bushes and stabbed her 24 times. The scissors he used cut so deeply in places that they had cut bone. Five days later, on February 8th, he struck again, 
This time, his unsuspecting prey was stabbed and strangled. He hid the body in some overgrowth, only to return several hours later with enough fuel to set the dead body on fire. He sat and watched the flames consume his second victim in less than a week. On February 15th, Peter Curtin stabbed a 45-year-old mechanic to death. The coroner found 20 of the stab wounds located mainly on the head and around the eyes. Over the next few months, he tried unsuccessfully to strangle four more people, and it wasn't until August 11th that he killed again. This time, it was a young woman he was out on a date with. After spending several hours together, Curtin brought her to a field, where he proceeded to kill her. On August 21st, the Vampire of Dusseldorf stabbed three random people, seriously injuring all of them. On the 24th of August, Curtin entered a fairground, selected his next victims, and followed them home. The two sisters were attacked the moment they were in a secluded area. He picked up one of the girls by her neck and cut her throat open. He would later confess to police that he then sucked the blood from her wound. He did the same to the other girl. It wasn't until the 24th of May, 1930, that Peter Curtin was arrested, but not before he had murdered and injured over 40 people. He was found guilty of multiple counts of murder and sentenced to death by beheading. The execution was carried out on the morning of July 2nd, 1931, and as the vampire of Dusseldorf walked to the guillotine, he asked, Tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. The bizarre story didn't end there. Peter Curtin's dissected head was mummified, and the brain was removed for scientific study. Experts wanted to explain why the blood-sucking serial killer committed such perverse crimes. However, researchers discovered no abnormalities with his brain that would explain his behavior. Interestingly, the vampire of Dusseldorf's brain would eventually find its way to, of all places, Wisconsin. America's Dairy State is the home of Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, where the brain has been on display ever since. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Comments? Questions? Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thanks for listening and for all of your amazing reviews and ratings. The 
Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.